your Bibles. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. A little taken off guard this morning as I felt the presence of the Lord really trying to do something among us. But I'm going to tell you this week, I don't know if you've ever had a week like this in your life. Everything seemed to be backwards. Anybody ever had a week like that where whatever you were doing, it just seemed to be backwards? For instance, let me just illustrate in my life. As you know, tonight after the mission meeting at Bunker Hill, I'm going to be preaching in the evening service there. Well, for years when I would preach two services on a morning and evening service, prepare two messages, I would always prepare the Sunday morning service first. And then I prepare the Sunday evening service. And for whatever reason this week, I didn't understand. I was drawn to preparing the message for tonight first, and then I would then I'll prepare this one. I was confused about it until, as a part of preparing for tonight's message, a strong, a strong and, and even strange question that I'll ask tonight came to the forefront, and here it is. Why do preachers spend hours praying, planning, preparing messages that few people really hear? And you would say, no, Brother Jerry, we're hearing you. Well, listen, there's three levels of hearing. I want, you, I want to be clear about this. There's the level of hearing that's superficial. You know somebody's talking. You know they're saying something to you. Now, if you want an illustration of that, ladies, that's when you're talking to your husbands. And they uh, go, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. And then you go, are you listening to me? That's superficial hearing. And then there's a hearing of listening for the, just for the facts. I'm going to confess my sin. My wife is back there nodding her head. I'm going to confess my sin. That is me. I learned in a marriage conference many years ago that ladies talk differently than men. I knew I'd get an amen. And they used the term spider webbing. And my wife has this down to an art. They'll start on this subject, and then they'll run down to this subject, and then they'll go back up to that subject, and they'll run down to this subject, and they'll run down here. And I'm going to confess my sin to you. Over the 50 years, almost 50 years that we've been married, more than once I have said, facts, honey, I just want the bottom line. Men, you said, that's what I'm thinking. Men want the bottom line. That's the second level of hearing, just superficially and just for the facts. The third level of hearing is where you listen with understanding. I heard a preacher say many years ago that when he was talking about marriage, he said, you know how you, know how you can listen with understanding for your mate? Say, tell me more. When it comes to preaching, I dare say that listening with understanding is best, it's best epitomized when somebody comes up and goes, now what you were saying is this. One-on-one conversation, Macy and I are talking, and I go, well, Macy, what you're saying is this. And I, and I tell her to her, and she goes, no, Brother Jerry, you missed the whole point. This is what I'm saying. That's listening with understanding. I fear that too, many, too often 
preachers because we feel like that the message, and this is such a sacred time, we come together and we pray and we plan and we prepare and people kind of listen superficially. And why do we do that? It's because it's so important. So how do we get on the same page? As I thought about it this week, it's one word. Perspective. People in the pew, that is you, will listen to people in the pulpit, that's me, when your perspective is that the preacher is giving us something that I really need. That's when we engage. Let me give you a couple of instances. In the aftermath of 9-11, for three weeks, churches were packed and people were listening in rapt attention because we felt threatened. For the first time, our safety felt threatened and we wanted to hear a word from God for three weeks. After Katrina, we could get back into churches and everything was a mess. People were coming that hadn't come and they were listening like they hadn't listened because their life were threatened. I even suggest to you that after COVID, people who said they'd never listen to a service online began to tune in. Churches that said they would never broadcast online did. When we came back together, people were in rapt attention because our health had been threatened. So I, I, I take from that that the only time we really listen to engage, listen with understanding, is when we have been touched emotionally. You touch our emotions and we're all about it. The truth is, it is only when our emotions are touched that we really engage our mind for something besides information. Are you listening to me, young people? I want you to hear this. I know you're tired. I want you to hear this. Most of us today in America read the Bible for information. That's why we study the Bible. Information. A man named Robbie Gallaty, well, you've heard this name and you'll hear it again in this message. Robbie Gallaty did a study, probably a year, year and a half study, on the Jewishness of Jesus. And he wrote a book entitled The Forgotten Jesus. Now, just so you know, I want everybody to be clear today. Jesus was not an Anglo, clean-shaven Anglo-American. He was a dark skin. Uh, I don't want to say Asian. He was a dark-skinned Jew, probably wore a beard. He was a rabbi. What Robbie found out in his study was that We read the Bible for information. The Jewish people read the Bible for intimacy with God. For intimacy with God. The truth is, even as I speak about this, there are people in this room, if you're honest, You remember a time in your life after you got saved when you were intimate with God. You were on first name basis with God. He felt he was closer than the mention of his name. But you also in your life, you know, you can go back to that point that something happened. It could have been a broken relationship. It could have been somebody treating you wrong. It could have been something happened in the church 
an event happened in your life and you lost that intimacy. There is also some, probably some people in this room, you remember that intimacy in your life. And it wasn't a, an event, but it was just the gravitational pull of life that slowly eroded that intimacy that you had. You could, it could have been back when you were a teenager, when you were sitting where these young people are sitting after a weekend like this. Today, if you're one of the people who are brave enough to admit that there was a time I was more intimate and I was closer with God than I am today, to you, I want to just tell you there's an answer today. And it is revival. It is revival. A few weeks, we're going to have a revival meeting. Now, I want to be clear, and I hope you will honor your pastor's wishes. Please do not go outside and, and advertise this and say, we're going to have a revival. Here's what the truth is. We're praying, Brent, that we have revival. But just because we have four days don't mean revival is going to come. Because revival is more than a series of meetings. Revival, revival brings renewal. So we get to our scripture today. Psalm 85 and 6. We've read it last week. We'll read it this week and the next two weeks. And it says, as you see on the screen, Will you not revive us again that your people, here's the reason, that your people may rejoice in you? You know what? I just want to say this to you and you can be mad at me because you know how much I love you. I see more smiles in the parking lot than I do in the pew. Are you not rejoicing in the one who saved you? I mean, what, what Stephanie and Eric just saying, what a sacrifice and it saved my life. It's the blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I don't know all you're trying to do today, and it may just be in me, your servant, but I pray that you would do it. I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our spirits and our souls to what you want to do, the light that you want to bring to us. I pray that you will send revival. Father, my prayer is it doesn't wait to February the 4th. I pray that you would do it right now, right here in this place. Use your word, use your spirit. If you can use your servant, I would say thank you. Bring revival. And for that person that has never trusted you, bring salvation and awaken them to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We think about revival. If you still got your Bible, I'll just tell you, I'm not going to read it all. Is that Psalm 85 gives you a, a snapshot. The first three verses tell us about how God had showed his favor. Lord, you showed us favor to your land. And how did you do that? You restored the fortunes. You forgave the people's guilt. You covered their sin. You withdrew your fury. And you turned from your burning anger. Now, return to us, God of our salvation. Abandon your displeasure. Well, Brother Jerry, you think he's pleased with, you think he's displeased with us? I'll just ask you a question. 
Everybody know Coach Dale Watts is my cousin. Went out to see uh, kids play ball on Friday, and when I would go out, I always visit with him a little bit. And he and I were talking about the days when he and I played ball and, and how things are different today. Than, I mean, we talked about a lot of things, and, <clears throat> and he told me, he said, you know, in the past I asked a player, I said, what kind of effort did you give me yesterday in that ball game? It's rated on a 1 to 10. 10 being the greatest, 1 being nothing at all. And without batting an eye, he said, I gave you about a 5. There's not a person in this room knows my cousin that thinks that's acceptable. Amen? But listen to me. If you, if you employ people, you're not pleased with a 5. If somebody's working for you, you're not pleased with a 5. Somebody working for me, I'm not pleased. Because here's what he's done. He's given a half-hearted effort. So let me ask you this morning. If I, if I were to ask you to stand up, if I were to start right here with Jackson and go, go all the way around the room to Susan, I would say, guys, I want you to stand up in front of God and everybody, and I want you to rate your spiritual life on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being nothing, 10 being the, everything God wants you to be. Where would you rate it? You just don't do that out loud. I'm not embarrassing you. But if I were to ask you to do that, what would the number be? And then you ask yourself if our Lord may have some problem with us. And then he said, then the people make the cry, return to us, God. And will you not revive us so that we can return and rejoice in you? This morning, I want to ask you a question. And I'm going to ask it multiple times because my mom taught me repetition is the mother of learning. We're going to put it on the screen. Do you, I want you, not everybody else, do you really want revival? Do you really want revival? Well, when I ask that, we have to kind of, kind of decide what it is. So let me just ask you a couple of questions. First of all, let me ask this. Revival, what is it? Revival, what is it? One word definition for revival is life. In fact, I'm a Star Trek fan, and I remember when they, on one of their episodes, they said life from lifelessness. Revival is an encounter with God. It's an experience with God through the flame and fire of the Holy Spirit. I've already mentioned Robbie Gallaudet. This is what Robbie says. Robbie says, Revival is breathing life into something that is dead or dormant. You know, and I love Vance Havner. Vance Havner said, Revival is falling in love with Jesus all over again. Don Robinson, the, the famous uh, um, evangelist, says this, Revival is the renewal of spiritual life in an individual or among a group of people. And your pastor just puts it like this. He says, revival is the return to spiritual life. Do you understand what's going on in revival? We take our fleshly desires and we turn them spiritual. Most of you know Michael Catt was a friend of mine. He passed away last year. In his book, Power of Surrender, he speaks about the Asbury Revival of 1970. 
It was a Tuesday morning, February the 3rd. Now, most of us know about chapel services at college. We've got some carried grads here. If you went to a Christian or Baptist college, chances are you had to go to chapel. We did. And those chapel services normally last about 45 minutes. On February the 3rd, 1970 at Asbury, they began the chapel service, and it lasted, are you listening, 185 hours. Put your pencil to it, eight days. Now their president, Kinlaw, was out of town when it all started. And he said that when I came back, I walked into that auditorium and it was thick with the presence of God. And somebody, uh, I think a reporter, asked him to expound on that a little bit. And he said, you may not understand this. And I want to say this to us Baptists. We may not understand it because it's been so long. He said, you may not understand this. But the only way I know to explain what happened last Tuesday is that Jesus walked into Hughes Auditorium and he's still there. You see, revival came to that college campus. Life from lifelessness, joy and peace. And it always happens when the Holy Spirit comes and takes over. It is restoration. There is repentance. There is renewal. There is revival. And the mundane is is overtaken with God's Spirit. That's revival. And joy comes from it. That's the result And I'll just pause here to say this. It's an old country preacher said this years ago. You can't be revived if you've never been vived. Now that sounds funny, but vive, y'all probably studied Spanish. I'm studying Spanish right now. Vive is a Spanish word for life. Vivir is the Spanish word of to live. And we're talking about living in the Spirit, not just existing in the flesh. Revival, what is it? It's life from lifelessness. It's life to the, to the dead or, the, or those who are without action. Second question, revival, when is it needed? Second question, revival, when is it needed? It's needed when our hearts grow lukewarm. Our hearts grow lukewarm when we lose, when we abandon, when we walk away from and when we replace our Lord in our lives. What causes that? Can I just suggest three causes to you? Number one is corrupted standards. Corrupted standards. When something gets corrupt, it's going the wrong way. As hard as it is for me to say, the average church particularly the Baptist church. I know that. The Baptist church in America is largely driven by tradition rather than truth. Tradition rather than truth. And you go, well, what's wrong with that? Well, you do realize, I don't want to burst your bubble, you do realize that it was the traditionalist that nailed Jesus to the cross. 
In fact, when the traditional police came to see Jesus and they said, Why don't you obey our traditions? Jesus called them hypocrites. (laughs) Sweet baby Jesus. Sweet little Jesus boy. Hypocrites. That doesn't sound like my Jesus. Well, you better read the Bible. And then he goes on to say, These people draw near me with their mouth. That means you talk about him. And and they honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. And watch this. And in vain, empty, do they worship me. Here's why. Because they teach as doctrine. Doctrine. The commandments of men. You see, folks, to Jesus... Truth, not tradition, is the way. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. If we're going to have spiritual life. And in a church, in an individual, is that when our standards get corrupted, death comes. May I take time to tell you a story? Some of you may have heard it before. It was about 10, I was trying to figure it out today, it was about 10, 11 years ago. I interviewed with a church in Mississippi, less than a two-hour drive from here, that at one time was the flagship, was one of the flagship churches in Mississippi. Before it was cool and common to have large membership churches, this, this church had a large membership. When I interviewed with them, they were struggling to have 80 people there a week. In fact, the only reason that they could stay open is because they had money. We interviewed with him with him three times. And we walked away with all three interviews. Here was, here was the deal. Brother Jerry, our church needs to be revived. We need to reach our community. We need to have new things. We, we need to be God's people here. But we want to tell you clearly before you come here. You can't change our policies. You can't change personnel. And you can't change programs. Now, Ryan, as an administrator, that doesn't sound like much of a winner, does it? In fact, I would just suggest to you that it's the epitome of what people call insanity. You do what you've always done, expect different results. Because I'm just going to tell you, when we do what we've always done, we'll be what we've always been and get what we've always got. You see, these standards, these standards are his, not ours. And I'll just tell you, to finish, to finish that story, I've never been so, so sad of anything in my life. Because when they told me that, I said, uh, guys, y'all do realize that you're about to die. And you do realize that if you don't make some changes, you're going to die. And one of the ladies on the committees, who really wanted the church to be God's church in the place, she looked at me and she said, Brother Jerry, I talked to one of our 80-year-old ladies the other day. And she was kind of giving me an earful about we need to have somebody just come along and do what we've been doing. And I told her, I said, if we keep doing what we've been doing, we'll be dead in five years, six years. And this lady said, I'll be dead by then, so I don't care. 
I don't know what you think about that exchange, but I'm going to tell you that does not epitomize the heart or the spirit or the passion of our Lord Jesus. That's not why he died. Corrupted standards. I'll try to move a little quicker. Compromised beliefs would be another thing. And we're not talking about philosophies. Every time I mention compromised beliefs, people start giving me philosophies about how the church runs, schedule, things like this. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this book. We're talking about this book, doing what he's called us to do, being what he has called us to be. For some people, they don't like what the Bible says, so they just change it. There might be somebody here that don't like what the Bible says about protecting life. Innocent human life. You don't have to like it, but you can't change it. It's his. Might not like what he says about morality and immorality. You don't have to like it, but you can't change it. It's his. Corrupted standards, compromised belief will, will pull us away from him. And the last thing is complacent attitude. I spent a little time on Wednesday night when we were talking in Amos about complacency. And I want you to hear me. If you're asleep, wake up because you need to hear this. Nothing destroys anything like complacency. It's the biological weapon of our enemy. He employs it in the least detectable way. And it is passively aggressive, destroying everything in its wake. I want to just say this to you. I don't know what your profession is, but never give a complacent person any responsibility anywhere. It doesn't matter if it's an organization, it doesn't matter if it's a club, it doesn't matter if it's a business, it doesn't matter if it's a church, it doesn't matter if it's a ball team. Complacency destroys. If you've got a ball team, baseball team, you better not put a complacent person on first. You better not put him at catcher. You better not put him on the mound. You can't put a complacent person on the field somewhere where it doesn't hurt. If you're in the basketball, same thing. If you, have, if, you, if you have a business, you don't want them on the counter. You don't want them in the shop. You don't want them in the office. Complacency kills. And if you're a church, you kill the impact of the gospel when you put a complacent person in a position of responsibility. A don't-care attitude, a me-first attitude. When the lostness of mankind doesn't touch your heart, complacency, and it indicates that you have lost your connection to the Lord and need revival. That's when it's needed. So, Revival, how does it start? Revival, how does it begin? How does it begin? If you still have your Bibles open, you could turn with me back to Second Chronicles if you'd like. If you don't, it's going to be on the screen. Let me just surprise some of you. Vance Havner, once again, he tells us that revival does not begin with joyous singing. Revival begins with conviction and repentance on the part of those who follow Christ. 
second time. I'm asking you, do you really want revival? Do you really want revival? You know why I'm asking that three times? I got one more time I'm going to ask it before we go. Do you know why I'm asking that? Do you really want revival? Here's why. From this book or throughout history, I have never found one instance where God sent a spiritual revival to a people who did not want it. If people want it and come in prayer to Him, He can send it. But the truth is, He doesn't send it to people that doesn't want it. Now, we all know 2 Chronicles 7, 14. We've, we've memorized that in our lives in King James Version. But the context helps. So on the screen in your Bible, we're going to read verses 1 and 2 and then pick up at verse 12. Here's what it says. When Solomon finished praying, I'll pause there to tell you that if you want to find out what, Paul, what Solomon prayed, it's the entire chapter 6 of Second Chronicles 7. When Solomon finished praying, here's what happened. Fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests were not able to enter the Lord's temple because the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. Now we're looking down at verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night, and he said to him, I have heard your prayer, and have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. Now do not miss this part. He says, God says, if I shut the sky so that there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people. You get who's sending this? It's not other people, it's God. And my people, who bear my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and hear their land. But he's not through. And he says, my eyes, in other words, I'm watching. My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer from this place. So, how does revival begin? We're going to take verse 14 and we're going to look at it in reverse. That's, that's the key to this. We do this because you are like me and like most Americans. We want results. So let's start right there with the last phrase, the results we want. The results. You want what results? You know what we want? We want that last phrase. Heal our land. Is there anybody in this room besides a preacher that would be brave enough to raise your hand and say you want our land healed? Anybody? Just me? Okay, six or eight of us. I mean, when you look at TV or the Internet, you see the political malaise that we're in. You see the financial, economical malaise we're in. We see the moral malaise we're in. We need some healing. Amen? We need God to step in and do something. Washington is in a mess because the heartland is in a mess. 
And the heartland, that's where we live, is in a mess. Listen, guys, because sin abounds. Sin abounds. The only way our land can be healed, that last phrase, is for sin to be forgiven. Sin, one and all. Sin is a mortal wound in people's lives. It's a mortal wound in our country. It's it's a mortal wound to both saved and lost people. It is the blood clot, if you will, that keeps us from wanting a fresh touch of God. Sin in a lost person's life is not surprising. But sin in the life of someone who claims to know Christ is a mortal blow to the health of our culture and our land. When people who name the name of Christ, you know those are my people he was talking about? When we live in sin and when we're comfortable with our sin, the land becomes unhealthy. The land becomes sick. The land dies. And oh, by the way, the type of sin it is doesn't matter because to God, sin is sin. In the church, we've decided there are some sins that are okay. You know, our complacency is not real big. Our our broken relationships are not real big. Our our petty selves are not real big. Our unforgiveness is not real big. They're not so bad. Well, that's to you. To God... It's those sin that sent Jesus to the cross. And the only way for this land to be healed, for us to be set right again, is for our sin to be forgiven. My people call by my name, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Then, watch this, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and hear their land. We want our land healed, so we need our sin forgiven. And the only way that happens to be heard in heaven. So, who's going to be heard in heaven? That brings it back to the responsibility. The responsibility that you have and that I have. God has given... Is everybody asleep? God has given the responsibility for reviving this land to you and me. Given it to you and me. He says, if my people, those who bear the mark of my name, those who are called by my name. You see, revival doesn't begin in the White House or the State House or the legislature or the, or the uh, Congress or even in Town Hall. Revival begins in God's house with the people of God, the church of God. Lost people don't start a revival. Lost people being saved are the result of God's people being revived. This land is not wicked because of the amount of lost people we have. This land is wicked because of the lack of influence exerted by God's people where we show them, we demonstrate to them God's love, God's life, God's passion 
God's mercy, God's grace, God's salvation, where we point people to Him, not even to us. And I don't think things are going to change in this nation until we're gone out of existence. Unless God's people stand up. The truth is, it could be a lack of intimacy with God. Peter writes to us, and he says, it's high time. It's high time for judgment to begin at the house of God. You know what this tells us? Let's be practical. It tells us who's responsible. It tells us who's responsible. I mean, we know about being responsible. You go to a hospital. The first thing they do is they stick some forms in your, in your face, release forms and all this, and then there's always that financial form. Who's responsible to pay the bill? And who signs that responsibility document? You can bank on it. They're going to come to you for money. You see, God has signed our name on the responsibility docket for the people and for the spiritual well-being of our nation. You see, folks, He doesn't want us He doesn't want you and me to be a thermometer in this culture, taking the temperature, the spiritual temperature of the culture. Listen, teenagers, he wants you to be a thermostat at your school where you set the temperature. I wonder... I wonder if Jesus would come here bodily and stand here, excuse me from the platform, and with his eyes of fire looked over us. And he looked past our exterior and he looked to our hearts. I wonder if he'd be proud of the way we're representing him right now. I wonder if our hearts, our words, our attitudes, our relationships would please him. If not, he speaks to us today. And the last thing that we see here that he calls us to, if there's to be revival, is the repentance that we need. And he outlines it in, the, in verse 14. The repentance. He said, here's what you've got to do. Are you ready? You must humble yourself, pray, seek his face, determine his wicked ways. Now, we're not very big on being humble. We're not. I mean, pride is the biggest thing in the church today. Pride is the thing that got Satan kicked out of heaven and also got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Being prideful is... God said he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. New Testament talks about us bowing in respect and awe before God. And we're not big on bowing. Do you know who I am? Well, do you know who he is? The truth is, is that no one struts into the presence of God. And no one struts out of the presence of God. Cause us to be humble. 
will humble themselves. Here, here's the conditions. Will you humble yourselves? And then it says pray. Isn't it amazing that the God of the universe wants you to talk to him? I mean, I mean, think about it. The guy who said, let there be light. I don't know who it was. I don't know what it was. I don't know who heard it. I don't know how they responded. I just know that God said it and it happened. I'm doing some a work for an upcoming message series. Did you know that Darwinism has been disproved? Do you know that any self-respecting um, scientist, geologist, uh, philosopher who has looked at all the way to the end, do you know that there probably was a big bang back there, but most of them say it didn't come by descent, it came by design, and there's an intelligent design that designed the intelligent design. And he, and he wants us to talk to him? Mm. How long, how long do you spend in prayer? You feel like it's a waste of your time? Then you don't know who you're talking to on the other end. Because when you bow your knee to prayer, you have the one on the other end that can change things forever. And then he says, I put the last two together. Humble themselves, praise, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Here's the deal. The reason I put those together is because they go together. If you seek his face... You must turn from your wicked way. There's no way. There is no way to seek his face and not turn from his wicked ways. There is, there is no way that you can face him and face evil at the same time. It's the law of logic. The third law of logic. The truth is, when we turn to him, he hears us, he'll see us. When we turn from our wicked ways... Things change. I'm going to put the question on the screen one more time. Here it is. Do you really want revival? Now, some people will say no. Some people will say no. But I'm going to ask you this. Do you want what God wants to give? I believe God wants to send revival. I think he'd love to start right here. Do you want it bad enough to discover what it is in your life that's holding it back? Today as I've spoken, has the Spirit of God spoken to your heart about the need for you to be revived? Brother Jerry, it doesn't matter what I do. Well, Leonard Ravenhill, revivalist from the 20th century, said, maybe you... Maybe you, maybe you are the key to revival beginning in this church. Why wouldn't you lead the way? Let's pray together.